you can see us, Adam, but we can't see you. <laughs> Just don't take advantage of the situation, please. I mean, he's always going to be drinking on screen or off, so that's usually how it goes. <laughs> Hi, Vanessa. <laughs> Hi, Dom. Today, well, sorry. Welcome to Uncertain Things, the podcast of misery and existential angst. That's that's our new tagline. I like it. And today we have Jacob Siegel, roving journalist, mostly writes for Tablet Magazine. Brilliant guy. You should follow all his writing and you should listen to all his podcasts mm-hmm. because he has, um, as we've just discussed with Nancy Rommel and uh, deep, sexy, growling voice and one of it's his true. many, many, many good qualities. <laughs> Though I should warn that he just moved, when we recorded the episode, he just moved to his new Israel apartment. And I believe his life may have still been a little bit in boxes. And you can hear through the interview things being shuffled around and, and moving. So we, we apologize for that. But then he, we're giving you the authentic experience. <laughs> Anyway, I reached out to Jacob because I just wanted to talk to him. I love his writing. I love his perspective. I thought there's going to be a lot to debate. There, were, there, there was five seconds into the fucking conversation, and we, it already turned into him berating me for not having kids. Mm-hmm. That was actually really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love that. It's not, it's not like you're the only one having this, this feeling. Like I feel like there's a generational pull in amongst our you know, younger millennials. Yeah, are we younger millennials, millennials or older, older millennials? millennials? Okay, among older millennials to 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 just be like, fuck it, why am I going to put more kids on this like dying planet? Um, yeah, although that's really not my perspective. I know that's not your perspective. And I really but... wanted to emphasize this. I sure. did not. Uh, uh, it wasn't a nihilistic urge. No, not at all. It's not anti-natal. It was not anti-natal. Fuck. It was not anti-natalist. It was not. Oh my god, the world is on fire, and what am I going to do with it? It's a much more selfish and solipsistic version of all of this. And honestly, I have this sneaking suspicion that a lot of the people who subscribe to this world is ending and therefore, why should I bring kids into this uh, damaged world are actually just masking their solipsistic reasons. I think it's a rationalization. Motivation, yeah. But my only point is that I think there has to be a really high bar to bringing people into existence. I think you need to be willing to sacrifice a lot close to everything as long as it's in the service of your child. And and that requires a high degree of selflessness. And I, uh, I'm afraid to say I'm no, nowhere close to the requisite self-abdication. But to Jacob's point, like you don't have to look at it that way i mean jacob no, no. will will well defend himself in the course of the conversation but i, think I don't it, think well but he will defend himself <laughs> he, no because i my my entire point is like sure your perspective is lovely and and majestic and well, biblical but I, I i think it's wrong i think his view worldview has primed him subconsciously to make that sacrifice but i don't think that it, all parents go into the project with that willingness, and that's a problem. And certainly from my perspective, I don't want to be there if I'm not willing to make that sacrifice. 
there is the potential there for becoming a bad parent that terrifies me. It's one of the greatest responsibilities in, in this world. And if you're not prepared to assume that responsibility fully and understanding what it entails, then, then you might be actively adding to the list of bad parents. And that's, I'm more judgy of bad parents than of people who decide not to bring children in, into this world. I think he would agree with you on that no, score. Anyway, that wasn't not, that was not the point of the conversation. No, sorry, that was a, a, a detour before even getting the first question in, basically. But it's just such an interesting topic, and we hardly ever get to talk about this, even though it really fits with the uncertain things theme. Because the reason we do this podcast is because we're haunted by the uncertainty of where everything is going. We're looking at the future and seeing just a veil of confusion, anger, loathing, partisanship, all the bad things, and we're not necessarily seeing what the path past it looks like. And in a very real, not cheesy sense, children are that. Like whatever happens 20, 30 years from now, largely is going to be led by people who aren't born yet. Yeah. It's kind of like the ultimate act of optimism, I would say. Or I mean, pessimism. not that. I think. I mean, a lot of looking at Gen Z. Well, not not to shade <laughs> too much at our Gen Z listeners, of which there are probably none. Um, maybe, but if maybe you're out there, send us a tweet <laughs> or TikTok message wherever you're at. The youngins. <laughs> We're not on TikTok, but send yeah. us an email. Maybe TikTok to our non-existing TikTok. <laughs> Also, are there TikTok messages? I don't even know. The one time, every time I go on TikTok, I get a stroke and too much of, I'm a boomer. Anyway, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm saying that it, it can't like, I mean, obviously some people have kids for, for various and sundry and personal reasons that have nothing to do with the state of the universe and our planet. But, um, if you do choose to have kids, I do think it's like a, it is a sign of optimism in the future, which can be good. Although it's interesting because most religions have an element of child rearing, right? Because religions are the blueprint in terms of setting up the terms of a good life. And that generally includes procreation and the continuation of the species or at least of the, of the tribe. And yet so many religions are inherently pessimistic, right? Calvinism, most of Protestantism, um, fair interpretation of Buddhism, like so many of these belief systems are fundamentally what we would consider pessimistic. And and yet growing and nurturing and, and bring up the next generation is part of them. It's, it's, it's fascinating that you don't see more anti-natalist religions. Obviously, and actually, anti-natalist religion has a problem of <laughs> replicating itself, I suppose. So, after we finish with this digression, we get back to the stuff that Jacob actually writes about, which spans from culture war and its impact on on media, one of our favorite topics. And we talk about schools a lot, actually, which is interesting because it was one of the reasons that affected Jacob's decision to leave New York. And that's something that we didn't really get into much besides our talk with Chloe Valdery, the way that the white fragility philosophy has invaded the public education system 
And we also talk a little bit about Afghanistan because Jacob served there. And that, that adds another little wrinkle in our conversation, which I found incredibly interesting. And really, Jacob brings a very different perspective to many of the topics that we've been triangulating around. Triangulating around? Is that, is that an oxymoron? No. Around means... Oh, around. around. I see, I see, I see, I see. I missed, I missed the play on words. Um, before we jump into the actual conversation at long last, I should let Vanessa make a disclaimer because she is 90% more sober than me. <laughs> I think I'm 100% more. I don't know how percentages work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was not mathematically confident enough to make that assertion. Um, no, I think the biggest disclaimer is that we recorded this a while ago and before Kabul fell, we, before the evacuations. And I think Adam also just makes some references and Jacob makes some references to articles that are quote unquote recent, but they are no longer. They are no longer just recent. Use, use your imagination, kids. The problem is if you really want to get into the, the articles, you, you can... Just you know, just just Google it. Just Google them. You have, we'll maybe put them on the show notes, but also you have Google on your phone. Uh, don't don't be lazy. Anyway, we appreciate your listen, and if you're if you're feeling so kind, please follow us on on all the the pod catchers and give us a five star review on Apple because that's really nice and helpful, and allows us to do these long form, really 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 long form interviews. So. Uh, yeah. Oh, and we're on certain pod on, on mm-hmm. the social media. We're not anything on TikTok. We're not anything on TikTok. <laughs> and that's that's it. That's probably, that's probably the how future. it will remain. That's it. Yeah. With that. Jacob Siva. Hi, Jacob. Adam, hi Vanessa. Thank you for having me on. So I'll just say uh, that when I originally reached out to you, we I, I think I don't even remember when it was, but I, I'm sure that I had a very um clear idea of 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 how the narrative that that I want to discuss to you regarding the your previously published work interfaces with things that were happening at the moment in American politics and maybe globally and now I have no idea um where where we are and and things have like changed so much since so we're going to look basically reinvent the uh the whole arc of our conversation as as we go oh no that's exciting i like going places without a map Yes, exactly. But yes, the map has been um, um, put to the fire. So before before we start, can you just um, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, where you are now? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm a senior writer at Tablet Magazine. Now that's where uh, I do most all of my work. I still, you know, occasionally write for some other places. Um, and I grew up in New York, in Brooklyn. Spent some time overseas in the U.S. Army. Been writing. Professionally, as a journalist, I was actually publishing as a fiction writer first, and then I transitioned to journalism in, it was right, right after I got back from Afghanistan, so I think it was 2013, uh, I started working in journalism. So I started when I was in my early 30s. I had my brother and father both you know, in the business in various ways, but I came to it late from fiction writing and... Uh, the army. And I left New York, I guess, five weeks ago now and relocated to Israel, uh, where I now live with my family. What, what took you to Israel? Well, you know, that's a longer story than I think we have time for here, (laughs) but, But, um, family and adventure. So two things that, um, 
in this case happen to be in agreement, but you know, are, are often in tension. But um, I wanted to get my daughter out of New York. And I also felt like I couldn't think in America anymore about America. Um, you know, I often tell people that I have no illusions about becoming an Israeli at 40. You know, I'm just, I'm an American through and through. But for me, this is like a, a left bank. Um, you know, it's a generative sentimental exile in a place I happen to love and, and feel connected to in other ways, but I'm an expatriate, you know, and uh, a literary expatriate. So that's, that's the adventure part. And then, you know, my daughter and uh, my family, it's, those are more, probably more important, certainly more important, but also more prosaic concerns about where I wanted my family to be. Yeah. I actually, can we, can we, linger on the question of what do you mean you can't think about the U.S. inside the U.S.? And actually, actually, you know, before that, because I think that will open up a whole other conversation. You said that you didn't want, you wanted to get your daughter out of New York. And, you know, I'm, I'm never, I've never really entertained the thought of, of bringing kids to the world. I just think I'll be a, a horrible father and it actually scares me. But I, it was always clear to me that if I had children, it wouldn't, it couldn't, possibly be in New York and probably not in, in America. It's just like something that seems, how is this a place to raise kids in? And, and, and I have many reasons of my own. I'm just wondering what was your um, big concern? Sure. Well, since we're asking personal questions, first, I'll just presume to tell you that's a terrible reason to not have children, <laughs> that you think you'll be a bad father is honestly, it's a bad reason. And, um, you should reconsider because, uh, you know, it's, it's vain, right? There's like a vanity in that, that, um, having children would actually allow you to overcome. So anyway, <laughs> that's fascinating because I thought that the vanity often is in having children in the yearning to fulfill your longevity or, or, uh, uh, fix in some piece of your identity that was missing. No, 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 no. What, what a preposterous, <laughs> what a preposterous, um, like late 20th century construction that, that the propagation of the species is what constitutes the vanity. I don't know when that came up. I think that actually, I think that was born out of environmental campaigns, environmentalist mm -hmm. campaigns in the 1960s that were, you know, deeply misanthropic, grounded in um, almost universally fallacious science that, you know, misjudged the population boom that was going to happen, misjudged the global freeze that was supposed to happen and had a kind of, um, you know, like super first world position towards humanity at large, which was, um, hostile but anyway i don't i'm not trying to like hector you no no no, no, podcast, no, no, actually, no actually no no okay. I, I, a you're more than welcome to and b <laughs> this is this is actually really interesting the where yeah. i see the vanity is not it's not the i'm contributing to glo global overpopulation and and environmental concerns but more so more of the, the hyper individualistic i think like or hyper liberal individualistic where mm. you bring up a, a creature to the world that that hasn't elected that you need to be there with the capacity to 
you know, be 120% in service of that creature. That is the, the minimal obligation that you need to afford in order to justify doing such a, mm. you know, tremendous act. Mm. And I don't know if I have the, the, the emotional capacity to do so. No, of course you do. You're overthinking it. You're overthinking mm. it. Like the presumption that there's some high bar on your individual character as you noted uh, that's the hyper individualistic you know, highly specialized liberal conception of the self but no the criteria for having a child is that god has blessed you with the ability to have children and you avail yourself of that miracle and you you make children and then you just do the best you can and you Um, are responsible and you're not a scumbag and um, which you know a lot of parents are and like I grew <laughs> up I grew up in New York and my parents thank God were not scumbags they were decent people overall you know my mother is like sort of perfect actually my father's <laughs> my father's more difficult and more complicated but both fundamentally very decent people um, but I you know had plenty of friends growing up who you deformed for decades in various ways by I mean I, we're all deformed in decades for you know for decades in various ways but but I, you know those of us who had parents who were basically loving and decent tend to be deformed in ways that we're able to overcome and that are sort of generative of our identities and the meaning of our lives and don't become pathological forms of self-abuse and masochism etc cetera, etc cetera, right so so there is a difference you know and I'm not I'm not saying you Anybody who has children is doing a good thing and um, that's not what I mean you can be bad to children and if you're bad to children you know I hope you get what's coming to you but uh, but on the other hand um, on the other the hand, bar isn't that high no no and it's not meant to be that high you know the like the bar is as high as it could possibly be in the sense that you need to have been born a human being and With a functioning body and sentience and um, the ability to exist in the world which is a fairly high bar from a certain perspective but you know having fulfilled that if you if you have some very determined reason why you don't want to have children or you don't think you should have children whatever God bless I mean but but in terms of why you would or wouldn't have children um, failing to meet some like personality type or or something like like basically if you can hold a job and feed a goldfish and are decent to your friends and if you can be a good friend to people those are the same characteristics and the same facets of yourself that would be applied now all of which is to say I grew up in New York I'm born and raised in Brooklyn I had a very good childhood I thought you I get along with my family. I have friends who still live in the same neighborhood where I grew up, grew up who I'm still very close with. So I wasn't fleeing anything. Um, the hardest part about leaving New York for me was leaving my family. But sometime around 2012, when I got off active duty, got back from Afghanistan and transitioned back into semi-civilian life in New York, it occurred to me that I didn't want to be in New York anymore. This was... sort of a premonition of how I would feel now, but a bit different than that I was married. And I stayed in New York because my family was there. For various, and my wife, and we started a life together. And, you know, there were things that kept me there. For me, 
for me, it wasn't where I wanted to raise my kids in part because um, this will sound strange and maybe overly abstract, but you know, the internet has so fundamentally changed the routines of social life and um, how our communities are constructed, mediated, and how kids grow up. And I feel like um, very big open societies in uh, not 100% of the time, not, not always, but often leave kids more vulnerable than smaller smaller, more enclosed societies too. You know, what I loved about New York being a teenager in the 90s was like running in the streets and, and not just running in the streets, like um, doing the sort of cool stuff that people glamorize later because I wasn't that cool, but just, you know, just having the ability to like go from neighborhood to neighborhood and explore things and sort of construct my sense of myself piecemeal from um from my experiences in a way that you know i loved and and uh was very rewarding for me but i worried about i worried about that i worried about or, or worried about the loss of that i worried about some of the indoctrination that i was seeing in public schools for one the thing for me as a kid was like you know you were supposed to have a diverse group of friends and um, not just racially diverse but like gay, straight, older, younger, some first generation, some, you know, in America, five generations. Well, like that was the whole point. And um, there's this, you know, this resegregation of society that I find appalling and that I don't want anywhere near my kids. You know, something that resonates with me in what you're saying is this thing that I, I hate calling by name because the English word for it has been so uh, molested by corporate jargon, but community, it's a feeling that I think many people who come to New York from different cultures find it surprisingly difficult to forge real connections in this, in the city. And the, impact has uh, i think uh, real consequences on on having an environment where you'd want to raise kids because you need that type of village as as the cliche says in order to provide the child with a sense of safety and security but also to mold them into yeah. A full member of the community. Yeah, I think you want a balance between that and an openness so that they are not, um, so that that community uh, doesn't oppressive. Yeah, right. Doesn't too forcefully constrain what's possible for them, that it, that it both shapes them and asks something of them. So instills in them, you know, the idea of a reciproc reciprocal obligation, but, uh, but isn't. Right, isn't repressive. So, and I guess I had something like that in New York, and I think other people are still able to find something like that. I hope, you know, like I still have family in New York. I'm not uh, not one of these people who's uh, celebrating the downfall of America, who's certain that it's all over. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, that that's a an increasingly common sentiment. Um, for for what it's worth, I 
feel incredibly lucky and grateful for having managed to find and build a network, to use another uh, repugnant corporate word, of, of people that I care about and trust in the city and have it imbued with this sense of reciprocal responsibility that you've described. But it also only served to highlight how difficult it was. And I think it's especially a New York thing. It's an uh, American-wide thing. It's very uniquely New York in a, a place that is built on constant volatility and, and change and turnover and professionalism, things that do not lend themselves to long-term relationship building. Right. I think it's just like the, the difficulty that I encountered in trying to build such a network of connection shows how fragile it is in the long term and, and how unsustainable it is if, if I were to have kids. Like, this is not something that I can trust to be there for the, the 10, maybe even 20 years required at a minimum to help shape and protect a child and give him the type of emotional foundation that I think is necessary for children growing up. So there's, I have this very underdeveloped theory that the transition from a Manhattan centric New York to a Brooklyn centric New York probably started in the mid nineties and uh, achieved a kind of apotheosis in like 2009, 2010, something like that was a, uh, Synecdoche for certain developments in the larger world. Growing up in the last period before that, more or less, there was a very clear and important differentiation between the outer boroughs and Manhattan mm -hmm. that still exists for Staten Island and the Bronx to some extent, mm -hmm. but has really been lost in large parts of Brooklyn and Queens in relation to Manhattan. And one of the great things about growing up in Brooklyn not to wax all nostalgic, but since I've left, you know, a bit of sentimentality should be okay. <laughs> it, it was that, you know, you, you could have a neighborhood that had a much more uh, communal feel. And, and there were, you know, people who I grew up with and uh, on my block who were still there, who had kids my age. And there was, you know, a real sense of a uh, real neighborhood that had mm. roots in families which is the only way that neighborhoods have roots is in families, right? I mean, mm. this is the difference between the constructions of real estate agents and, and real estate developers. These are places that work for office dwellers and young singles, and those can be fun, but they're not real neighborhoods. You know, neighborhoods are built around families <clears throat> for the most part, and there are a few exceptions. But you could have that, and then you could go into Manhattan, and Manhattan was, you know, more volatile and and um unrooted and like you know you could mess up and um run around and and have fun and then come home and I, you know i feel like sometime around probably 2002 maybe even a little earlier in 1999 people started moving to brooklyn to live their lives in brooklyn it wasn't just that they couldn't afford to be in manhattan they actually wanted to be in brooklyn which i could never can never quite get my head around. But not long after that happened, then the homogenizing Brooklyn aesthetic started to appear everywhere I went in the world. And I realized that the elevation of Brooklyn into this kind of central role in the cultural life of New York corresponded to not only like the destruction of part of what had made Brooklyn 
interesting and vital to begin with, which was much more connected to geography, you know, mm-hmm. deep water port and this active harbor and the, the Prospect Park and the topography, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it was this kind of model of a modular, placeless place that could exist anywhere. And that was very useful as a uh, vessel for um, these digital commodity exchanges that uh, started to restructure the world. It's interesting, the impact that Brooklyn had on our mental image is, is so deep that when you say gentrification, the first thing that comes to my mind is a specific aesthetic of architecture with yuppie mm. cafes and gyms that look like they came out of the same box. And it's bizarre when you go to big European cities to see how much the neighborhoods that are built for tourists as hipster have been essentially Brooklynized. There are some places that are actually the called one, That Brooklyn. one light bulb that hangs from the ceiling. Exactly. And the, yeah. <laughs> the, the fake wooden, yeah. like, raw bark uh long table for communal dining and uh yeah and some places are literally called brooklyn and then you get the signal that uh, there lies wi-fi and where you can uh, congenially communicate with other tourists without risk of being contaminated by actual local culture and i didn't always feel that way there's a good article that came out a few years ago uh called airspace by a guy named i think kyle chaka i think was his name um and he talked about this kind of just uh, uh, he called it airspace because deriving from airbnbs it's like all of a sudden Is over the course the verge? of maybe yeah maybe i think i read that yeah, yeah yeah i know what you're talking about yeah and he was like when you look at airbnb like it used to be this weird kind of quirky place mm. and then over time they all started looking exactly the mm-hmm. same and he kind of called this an airspace because it was like at, at once like signifying and vacuous <laughs> you know like referencing airbnb but also this like non-entity of it this non-place place um and so it's, so it's very a phenomenal similar. piece yeah it's, i just looked it up it's in the verge yeah. um yeah yeah, that's a phenomenal piece, and and it's uh, that placelessness, which um, I should say, like it, you know, to step back into the kind of early gentrification debates that were going on in New York in the nineteen nineties. That I mean, that I was party to. Excuse me, those gentrification debates were going on decades before I was born, but the ones that really got hot um, in the you know the Giuliani era, and then really in the Bloomberg era in New York. You know, I was much more. I don't know quite how it, uh, anti-anti-gentrification might be the way I would describe it, only because, or principally because I saw it often as a glorification of criminality and dangerousness that I had actually lived through and that had affected my life and um, and my family's life. And, and where the word gritty does a lot of work, like hiding, right. like, right. oh, gritty New York. It's cool. Like, yeah, it's cool if right. you don't actually live through the 70s, 80s New York. And I was guilty of it, too, in the sense that, like I'm saying, with Manhattan, I was happy for Manhattan to be disordered and you know, dangerous in certain ways. I just didn't want it in Brooklyn where I lived, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was guilty of some of the same stuff. But that made me uh, very resistant to some of that. 
at the time. And I also just saw people's lives being improved in, in certain very clear ways. You know, friends of mine in, in Queens, for instance, whose property value of their family's places were going way up because the neighborhoods were getting safer and they were finally starting to get some local commerce around them. You know, that has happened in my neighborhood also where when I was growing up, there was like, you know, there was no bank in the neighborhood. There were no nice restaurants. Then of course, I mean, there really weren't any restaurants at all. There were just, it was like takeout Chinese Mm -hmm. and the takeout Chinese on my corner had a bulletproof glass Mm -hmm. divider that came down on the counter and a lazy Susan in the bulletproof Mm -hmm. glass divider and you put the money in and that was okay for a while, but you wanted a restaurant. So we got some restaurants, but then we ended up getting like 30 restaurants. It just never stopped. Mm. And I hadn't fully been cognizant of how, uh, how much the, the underlying, I guess, economic, political economy questions behind this were much more important than like, cultural questions about what kind of neighborhood people wanted to live in or mm-hmm. people's uh, consumer choices. So basically what ended up happening was once money got freed up for a certain kind of investment, neighborhoods were safe enough uh, to invest in and there was underutilized or unutilized real estate potential. There was, it became very, very difficult to meaningfully constrain this process that got started and to say, okay, well, now we have enough restaurants. Like maybe we don't need a 30th restaurant mm-hmm. on this street. Maybe what we want is, um, I don't know, some other kind of store that doesn't exclusively cater to um, this like, recreational leisure lifestyle, which is fine. I like restaurants too, but, but that process i think what the verge piece uh the airspace piece illustrates really powerfully is the way that this kind of totally uh homogenizing aesthetic kind of airspace model is a function of the internet economy in certain Mm -hmm. very fundamental ways and you know it means that like wherever digital economy conditions obtain you're going to find the same kind of space and that space is going to be built over whatever long held generational traditions existed prior to that. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, in the nineties, I didn't grasp any of that when the first wave of the gentrification debates were happening. And uh, well, that also the, the the reality of digital economy of the nineties was not the same as, as it is now. We just had the conversation with uh... Justin Davidson, uh, the architecture and classical music critic for uh, New York Magazine. Yeah, about what the city is going to look like post-corona and to what extent that's going to completely rejigger the calculus on all those things. But we are pessimistic generally. The other thing that you mentioned, and apparently we're, we're going through your life story now, was um, <laughs> um, indoctrination. What troubled you? Well, I didn't experience it, uh, you know, but what troubled me in terms of my daughter's potential experience in the schools was uh, the critical race theory stuff. Mm. And it's not just critical race theory stuff. Critical race theory is a, a useful stand-in for, I think, a larger um, suite of ideological postures that are useful to a very narrow band of the elite and then a larger number of bureaucrats. And I view them all as 
hideous. And I don't want my kids anywhere near their freakish um, ideas about racial essentialism and inborn racial guilt and like how, you know, the written word is uh, and punctuality are, are symbols or reify white supremacy. I mean, I just, I view all of that as not only hideous, but also, I should say, not overblown, you know, not merely a concern of um, right-wing paranoics or cultural warriors. I'm watching it. Happen. That's actually where I'm really interested because we, we've definitely discussed it in theory and we, we, we had conversation about the interesting underpinnings of critical race theory and where intellectually it, it, it can be very stimulating and valuable and where it can get ridiculous and dangerous. But the question of where it actually meets reality and to what extent mm. you as a parent actually see that affecting pedagogy in schools. Sure, I, I can speak to it. I mean, there are some very obvious ways. First of all, my wife was a public school teacher in New York, mm. so I saw very directly through her experiences, um, which I can get to in a moment. Let's just take what's happened in the last month under the Biden administration, right? Because there's no need to go searching for examples of the the impact that this is having or the way it's restructuring education. So, you know, there's now an incentive introduced uh, for K through 12 curriculum that include the 1619 Project and Ibram Kendi's anti-racism work and other like-minded materials. You know, the 1619 Project has already been incorporated into curricula in various school districts across the country. It's emblematic of a larger push. Yeah, we can debate critical race theory, and I'm happy to do so. But it has a discernible meaning, practical, applied meaning in these contexts. It's not necessarily synonymous with academic or intellectual roots, which might be, uh, you know, more open and more subtle. Um, But when we talk about it in the context of what it means in bureaucracies, at the moment, New York uh, public schools are one example, public schools across the country are one example. There are other bureaucracies, for example, you know, the preferential race-based preferential medical treatment, which is now uh, essentially an article of faith in large parts of the American medical administrative community who used the uh, COVID became a kind of test case for saying to to not deliver preferential treatment to certain racial groups would be racist, right? So therefore, the appropriately anti-racist measure is to create preferential racial hierarchies for medical treatment to correct against inequities that would occur in the absence of those racially discriminatory policies. That happened. This is not uh, like right-wing fever dream stuff, Breitbart stuff. This is what's happening right now in the school system. The 1619 Project, that I'd be happy to debate. I happen to think that it was it was mixed. There were better and worse centuries in it. But overall, it's not, it wasn't an historical project in the, in the sense of academic history or disinterested scholarly history, nor was it a journalistic project. It's exactly what the Times said it was from the beginning, which was an attempt at narrative reframing. And that narrative reframing at its core rests on a kind of racially essential view, uh, essentialist view of American history, 
uh, I think a much more sophisticated one than Kendi, uh, for instance, uses. But but nevertheless, uh, but one that is you know at, at its root a kind of moral political framework rather than a genuinely historical framework. Kendi, I don't have that much good to say about. You know, I think Kendi is a. I think his doctrine of anti-racism is. Let me say this about it. First of all, I think that it's um, racist. <laughs> you know, um, I think that it's racist. I think that it's um, horribly detrimental to every group in America. So mm-hmm. the people he thinks he'll be helping with it, the people who are supposed to be getting anti-racialized, it's bad for everybody precisely because racialized politics are bad for everyone, which used to be a you know a foundational liberal understanding there's a brief period of time i mean it's exactly against this foundational liberal understanding that the current push is 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 coming up right they they are exactly saying or our attempt to reach racial indifference is the problem color blindness right right? our supposed color blindness is (laughs) the illusion that they claim to want to shatter right but it goes well beyond that so it's not mute like like, let's say that that was the those were the premises uh, premises of let's say, affirmative action. You know, I think it's now transcended mere antipathy to colorblindness. And it's now openly advocating um, a formalized racial bureaucracy to mete out equity programs in a way that activists even a generation ago would have recognized was too a step too far to introduce into public policy in such an open way. Why was it a step too far? Because it's profoundly unpopular among Americans who, by and large, don't go for this shit. These are very unpopular policies, uh, unpopular ideas among everybody. And they're also, to some extent, far more unpopular even among the media class than people let on because there are all these publications where people you know, in private conversation, we'll say like, yeah, the Kendi stuff is kind of ridiculous, but they wouldn't dare to say that publicly. They wouldn't dare to, to attach their names to that. They don't want to defend it explicitly, but they want to attack the people who criticize it, right? So like if you criticize Kendi too vehemently, you're a reactionary. And so it's then easy to criticize the anti-Kendi people as being reactionary. But many of the people who make their livings criticizing, let's say, the anti-critical race theory types, they won't actually defend the ludicrous precepts that that form the critical race theory doctrine. They'll come up with these kind of clever equivocating formulations hmm. around that um, because you know, Kendi says stuff that's openly indefensible. The the white privilege people who are doing the knapsack unpacking courses for uh, whatever, $10,000 an hour for people to pay to have their privilege explained to them are ridiculous on their face. And now maybe it's easier to, to criticize those sorts of people, largely because, you know, a lot of them were white, which makes it easier to, to point out the hypocrisy of it or like the farce of it. All of which is to say, like, to just bring this back, my wife was a public school teacher in New York, right? She just, my wife is, I would say, studiously apolitical. Not that she's disinterested, not that she's, you know, 
there's nothing she cares about in politics, but she's somebody who's just, she's not immersed in it. She's not a media person. She went into teaching because she wanted to teach. That's what she wanted to do. So much of her time as a public school teacher was diverted into these kind of justice-oriented, restorative justice, and like-minded activities. It really detracted from her ability to teach. So to leave aside for a second even the effect of those programs, those policies, you know, what they were actually instilling in the students and what the content of that was, in a more fundamental sense, you're just not educating these kids. Mm. Um, that's indoctrination, right? When the kind of political dogma becomes more important than the non-political facets of, of knowledge, uh, that's indoctrination. I, I don't want to overplay devil's advocate on this, but you could Please. argue, you could definitely make the case that instilling moral principles and, and, and having some, some, you know, normative guidance is part of education. And I think that's how they would rationalize it to themselves. The problem obviously is when you become so engrossed in your own theory that you, you lose the ability to be critical of it. And then you're slipping into, uh, like you said, propaganda and indoctrination. Yeah, no, I would agree with all that. I want to ask something about something earlier you said. I mean, some of these, because I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic to some of these kind of more equity-seeking policies that seek to kind of correct for, um, you know, in inherent inequalities in the system and seek to kind of potentially overcorrect, but at least address these these um, inequities that exist. I am sympath sometimes it's because you buy the euphemisms as face value. I'm sympathetic to them. I think there's like there's a historical reason to to try and overcome things that have, you know, time and time again put certain people at a disadvantage. What I don't understand is why there's so we just had a conversation with Bacha Ungar Sargon. And what I don't understand is why there's so little conversation about class in these conversations because like you you could definitely go into a uh create some sort of like i don't know covid vaccine distribution center in a low income community it's probably going to happen to be a community with more people of color not necessarily but probably um and so then you're that's the way that you are kind of overcompensate or, or, or kind of recorrecting for the difficulty that these people have in accessing things like vaccines. So I guess what guess what I'm asking is like I feel like there's a there's a weird lack of conversation around class, but at the same time it, it there is a racial component there that you know we do have to acknowledge. So I'm just I don't know. I guess I'm just curious to get your like your response to to that. Um, I think that the reason why look I, I'm. I'm a, an integrationist, you know, that's my, my racial politics are integration, um, not forced integration past legal, the elimination of legal forms of discrimination, but, uh, but I don't, I don't approve of state enforced segregation policies. Um, and I don't approve of race-based preferences when it comes to the state. That said, uh, you know, absolutely, there are historical injustices that ought to be taken into account in public policy. And I actually think that there were many years where um, it did make more sense. There was a more compelling argument for um, certain systems of racial preferences as you know, temporary. I mean, I think I could see the initial, uh, the earlier arguments for 
mm-hmm. affirmative action, for instance. It's not difficult for me to understand them. Now, where those led, I think, is problematic. But uh, I'm not, like, in principle, totally opposed to this. The reason why you don't hear class come up in these conversations is because they are generated by, pick your euphemism, professional managerial class, um, ruling class apparatchik types, highly credentialed upper middle class administrative and information economy people are who drive these conversations. And they are not about the fundamental redress of economic inequalities in America. That's precisely what they're, design- they're designed to obviate, right? They're, they are end runs around real redress of economic inequality, which would seek, um, I think, much more wholesale change in the in the economic regulatory structures in America. And, and that's not what they're about. What they're about is um, the uh, cultivation of electoral coalitions. What they're about is um, a kind of uh, clientelism you know, with a kind of racial basis, which has a long history in America. Like, look, ethnic horse trading politics has a long history in America, right? Like, it's not, uh, it's not like there's no precedent for either racist policies in American history or, for that matter, for non-explicitly racist, but um, let's say parochial, ethnic, and racial kind of divvying up. In the past, there were better, not the racist policies, obviously racist and bad, but the kind of ethnic, parochial, whatever, Tammany Hall style in New York, there are other examples, there are better and worse versions of that. Um, And it's perfectly legitimate for a a community of people to advocate for their own interests. But that's not what's going on here, okay? Like uh, the critical race theory doctrines, or let's just call them, if you know, critical race theory is too much of a buzzword, the the equity doctrines that are so popular, whose interests does that represent? What what outcomes does that produce that redound to the benefit of what people? You know, show me. Because what I'll show you is that the practical outcomes are, you know, the elimination of standardized testing, which has been declared, you know, synonymous with white supremacy, it's, it's, I'm I'm sorry, uh, let me just shift this slightly into a different area. Let's talk about policing. Policing to me is a very good example of a large scale, seemingly intractably complicated social political phenomenon in which everybody sort of has a point. There is a history of racism in American policing. there are these horrifying examples of you know, high-profile incidents where often black men, though not exclusively, seem to get singled out and treated with despicable lack of regard by police officers. These things clearly happen. At the same time, the phenomenon of you know police killings of black men has been wildly hyperbolically exaggerated to nobody's benefit. The idea that there is a war on black men by police in America, an open season on black men is not only is it misleading and absurd and totally removed from what the evidence actually shows. 
it is a it is a fallacy that leads to certain policies in the direction of defunding the police, let's say, that are not popular in black neighborhoods or in any other neighborhoods in America. These are deeply unpopular policies. The people who get treated as if they are exemplary social justice activists whose equity policies are um, the standard for what moral political behavior is in America. But when I say they get treated that way, I mean they get treated that way by the kind of opinion-forming media institutions. You know, when when pro-rioting, pro-looting people go on NPR and get, like, kid gloves interviews, when defund the police and police abolition um, sentiments get treated as normative um, by the kind of prestige press. And not to say they should be beyond the pale. I'm not saying we shouldn't be able to discuss them. But the question is how they're treated. Are they treated as fringe views held by a narrow group of highly educated activists? Or are they treated as if these are the normative positions held by these, uh, you know, oppressed groups in America? They're not. They're not. Uh, most people want better policing. They may, you know, often uh, the recent survey show people do want to see money shifted towards social services, but not at the expense of police in their neighborhoods. They still want police in their neighborhoods. And, you know, I covered the initial wave of police protests in New York in 2014. And it was the, the most obvious thing in the world. If you just went to these protests and you talked to people, what you found was at any protest over a thousand people which meant that it represented more than just uh, sort of professional and semi-pro activists, which found that people were like, yeah, I don't want police to like rough me up. I don't, you know, I don't, the stop and frisk to take a New York example, which was this sort of policy that empowered police officers in New York to just like, you know, essentially stop people without any real probable cause and, and um, sort of pat them down had gone way too far, especially under Mayor Bloomberg, had become kind of primary form of interaction between police and you know, black and Hispanic neighborhoods in a way that I think was abusive and, you know, racially loaded, if not overtly racist, and was a real problem. And people were reacting to that. Um, they were reacting to the Eric Garner case. Um, and they were saying, we, you know, you can't treat us like this. Um, our lives are not cheap. But the last thing in the world they were saying is like, we don't want police in our neighborhood. That You had to be talking over them deliberately to hear that. And that's a lot of what this stuff is. So to me, that is of a piece with this equity conversation, right? Insofar as... Why doesn't class get brought up? Well, you know, one way to look at these policing conversations is that it's a question of the allocation of scarce resources. And so all this talk about, like, not policing certain neighborhoods, which is where there's been a tremendous spike in crime in American Violent cities crime. over the last year in New York, included precisely the most violent crimes, murders. It, it's not affecting policing on the Upper West Side. You know, one way to look at this is that the, the class dynamics of this are such that there's no, the costs are either deferred or um, entirely kind of um, uh, displaced 
by in in people who advocate for this policy, you can advocate for defunding the police often and not have to experience the direct consequences of that. I I, I want to uh, take up your point about violent crime because and and it actually leads us to the conversation we wanted to have about. some of your previous articles about the current state of, of media and, and the um, information world, because a big part of this critical race theory uh, battle is over the, the realm of knowledge and the question of what constitutes legitimate knowledge and how, like, how to interpret knowledge. It is epistemic, but it's not just in the realm of philosophy. It's, it's in a very practical way when it comes to journalism. The, the concrete example to, to how muddy the, water get, the, the waters get is there have been a lot of reportings about you know, the spike in police. What's the, the, the euphemism, the police-involved shooting? There was a rise in police shootings over the past year. Most of those articles fail to mention just how commensurate that is with the rise in violent crime. And to talk about police shooting as if it happens in a vacuum, and now that America has seen the, 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 the craziest spike in crime over the past, of violent crime, of murders over the past year, is where I would come from as a journalist. I would call it total like, professional dereliction. You can't tell a story that, that talks about the relationship between police and community and not explain why the police are there in the first place. You take that bit off and what you get is a picture of... police officers on the prowl for for prey and absolutely it's true that we have psychopathic sadistic cops and arguably chauvin was one of them and i talked about it in previous episodes just how com- freakishly compelling the case against him in, in in during the trial was so we have insane cops who have racist cops and we have a system that covers for them that needs immediate reform um Not that Congress is doing anything about this, but is in dire need of reform. So all that is true. Mm-hmm. But that's not an excuse to not do your job and give context to stories. Because without context, you are giving too much wind to possibly the wrong remedies. And beyond that, you're instilling a sense of terror and dread in the public that is distorted. And probably the worst thing. for the sake of a real uh, chance of rectifying community relations with police, which should be the goal. You want police that doesn't murder civilians, and you want a community that can trust the police. And the way to do that is through real reform that uh, kills the impunity of, of police, of bad police officers, but also doing so in the context of what's happening and where police is needed and, and supporting the communities that are currently facing the absence of good policing because they are currently like, riddled with crime, which usually are not the, the wealthiest neighborhoods in a city. And, you know, my general belief is that the actual advocates on the ground who are working on these issues, they know what they're doing and, and they have really sincere and well-informed tactics. But it gets lost when it reaches the, the like, high-volume coverage. And that's why I'm talking about a, a crisis of knowledge and, and transferring of knowledge and interpretation of knowledge. I think you're exactly right. Uh, look, there's a problem in that we're living through a 
moment of profound, not just transition, but a kind of revolutionary break um, in communication technologies that is shows up in a lot of our politics. You know, I think a lot of what appear to be ideological battles at the moment are these kind of epiphenomena of the internet. And one of the things that has happened is that as the ability to coordinate top-down authoritative political narratives has structurally come undone. It's begun to collapse because rather than having a few all-powerful broadcast channels that everybody tunes into and that are easy to um, easy not only to influence but to place within a certain social consensus so that whatever variation occurs between them, there are clear parameters of what constitutes the kind of normative position. You know, the internet obviously makes it so that anybody can broadcast information and if they have a powerful enough signal, they'll generate an audience, theoretically at least. What that has done though has two things that are salient to this conversation. One is that it's exposed the vulnerabilities and hypocrisies of the American expert and opinion-forming class in a way that was not always um, so easy to do or so evident. It doesn't mean that uh, earlier generations of technocratic experts were necessarily always better or nobler, more informed, but in part, um, they were simply more insulated, but also that insulation, I think, made them less defensive, less um, insecure about their own position. The other thing that it does is to make the people who recognize that their grip on the consensus formation machinery has begun to slip, it makes them go crazy because they attach everything to the status that comes from the ability to manufacture these consensus positions which dole out status to certain people moral approbation to other groups of people it's it's all important right it's where you stand in society it's the source of your power of your social meaning of your social standing is the ability to tell people what to think and how to feel and as you feel that start to slip you become I think the way I, I wrote a piece for Unheard magazine in January, um, I forget the title of it, but it, it's basically about how the collapse of the of the expert class has actually, in the short term, led to more rewards for them. They've only gotten more powerful. 2020 exposed like, these incredible, this incredible degree of corruption, venality, incompetence on the part of the sort of technocratic expert class in America. And what happened? You know, Andrew Cuomo got a book deal, you know, now he's in trouble because it's for political reasons. Now it makes sense to go after him with all these things that people always knew about it. But, you know, there are all these groups in America, the public health uh, experts, uh, the media, you know, whose incompetence was made manifest and yet who seem to have benefited from it. And the reason why is because they close ranks and because they become more and more insular and self-serving. And at the same time, what that produces is a ever more ideologically vindictive, coercive set of narratives that have to get more divorced from reality in part as a way of 
distinguishing themselves from the rabble. So that maybe that's a bit of obscure. Let me explain what I mean by that. If anybody on Twitter can now point out a thing that is actually happening, right? And their power in part, like these random people on Twitter, on Facebook, mm. on, on Parler, wherever, comes in part simply from their ability to notice things that are salient, right? To, to provide information that appears to be accurate and pattern confirming or pattern denying. If any random schmuck off the street who hasn't been to Columbia or Barnard or whatever can do that to distinguish yourself from those people, you, you need, you need um, a, a more specialized kind of information. Right, so generalized reporting information no longer is the province of a specific group of you know reporters, and the reasons for the kind of collapse of reporting are are structural and complicated, and it's not just because like millennials are dumb or something like that. You know, a lot of the 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 kind of um, activist journalism that millennials are doing now, stuff they were encouraged to do by older people who had first destroyed the newsrooms that they had to go work in and then exploited them. But the point is that the function of the media now, in the absence of the ability to do real reporting in part, and also in the presence of this proliferation of competing platforms, publishing venues, broadcast venues where other people can provide information, the function of the media has become the propagation of these top-down narrative constructions, right? These highly uh, political, highly specialized narrative constructions. There's a guy named uh, John Robb, who's a former special operations guy, um, who's become, he's a you know, kind of strategist, writer. He wrote a book called Brave New War that was very good. Anyway, I like him a lot. He's got a phrase that's always stuck with me. He calls it moral conjugation. The function of the news is no longer to go out and report on the world and, and tell people what's happening, reflect their world back to them. And in part, because that's more expensive, right? So in the first place, the newsroom stopped funding that kind of activity. And also because it's no longer... Um, something that technologically, it's no longer something that the newsroom has kind of exclusive control over because anybody um, on a social media platform can do it now. So now what they do is they morally conjugate events. Mm -hmm. The uh, shooting in Ohio happens, they tell you how to feel about it right away. This is, this is like George Floyd. You should understand this. Never mind that this young girl was in the process of trying to stab another girl when she was shot. The way you should understand this is George Floyd. We're telling you what this event means. Again and again and again. Right, again and again and again. But um, that is fundamentally, I think, a reflection of structural conditions, not individual choices by journalists, not like ideological indoctrination, you know, more than anything, I think that that's actually about communication technologies and the effect, these, this long-term process of the effects of these communication technologies playing out. That, that's how I see it. This is, I think, where we agree about the most, you and I, definitely not on, on, on progeny, but the in, in the realm of 
like uh, that it's the shrinking of opportunities and losing the monopoly over reporting that has led the old establishment media to rely on more arcane sources of authority and more priestly type of interpretation that we like you come to us because we have the authority to judge how to view events like yeah you can get the information from anywhere but we tie the dots together and tell you what's really going on so it doesn't matter whether the police officer was trying to defend a girl from an assailant the real story is open season on black people yeah yeah i think that's right um I think that's right. I think that it's not um, broadly popular, that approach. You know, I think actually it generates a lot of internal dissonance, a lot of um, resistance. And, and because of that, you have this very active, aggressive information enforcement machinery, this whole technological administration of uh, narrative enforcement outside of narrative formation. So all these people whose job it is to police people's thoughts and, and opinions and declare what's misinformation or disinformation and to declare what um, what constitutes, uh, you know, a fireable or executable offense or whatever reflects the fact it, it's not necessarily an indication of ideological vehemence or passion it's not i think a lot of the people who do this stuff are not doing it because they are in the first place true believers yeah but fear can lead you to become a true believer i think it's it's more important i think the person who be or not more important but more powerful in the sense that often the person who becomes a true believer absent fear is more capable of changing their belief Right. The, the kind of person who has the disposition that without coercive external forces, they, they are inspired to believe in some kind of utopian system or, or some kind of system of, uh, you know. They're more prone to disillusionment and, yes. and revisiting yes. their thoughts. I, yes. Yeah. Whereas there is the, the, the um, fanaticism of the converts. That that really is dangerous because once you've right. been you've been converted, once you have adopted it, whether because you are uh, forced into it or or whatever psychological play your brain has done on you to convince you that this is your new worldview now, you will cling to it ever more tightly because this is this is it now. You yeah. have you have made an active change. That's why people who discover the light are are so keen on shoving it down your throat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's what you're describing, right, which is the kind of zealotry of the convert. And then there's also people who get backed into this out of fear or exigency or opportunity or whatever. They know always in the back of their head that it's not totally authentic. And so they have to work doubly hard Mm-hmm. to prove their commitment right this is why like the affirmation this is the fundamental fundamental lessons of you know 20th century totalitarian systems is the affirmation of the obvious lie it becomes more and more important you have to affirm the obvious lie why do you have to affirm the obvious lie first of all to prove your loyalty um because not only are you saying that you're willing to go along with it you know if you say presented with uh blue sky if you say the sky is red not only are you demonstrating a kind of blind loyalty you're 
demeaning yourself. You're debasing yourself. And having now demeaned and debased yourself, having shown yourself willing to lie in that way, you then become kind of co-opted and implicated into the crime of the telling of the lie, right? And you want to demean other people in the same way that you demean yourself. And you never have to reckon with the way in which you've demeaned yourself as long as you uphold the lie. But if the lie comes crashing down, all of a sudden you're confronted with the fact that you are a, you're a pathetic thing, right? And we're all pathetic things on some level. So, I mean, maybe it's, maybe that's the lesson people should be willing to acknowledge uh, <laughs> their weakness, and their fallenness, and it would make that easier. And to make it just more mm. concrete uh, and, and, and take it from the, the uh, much as I like the abstract, uh, you know, one of the recent stories, the, the Paul Rossi story, which I'm sure that you've read, is the, the, the school yeah. teacher who published his experience in, in Barry Weiss's column. I think it was later published by the New York Post. He was just describing his, you know, conflict not dissimilar to what you were um, alluding to with your, with your wife. Yeah, he was a math teacher and he discovered that Increasingly, more of his time was being sucked up by by equity programs and and right fragility type seminars that he was supposed to incorporate with his curriculum and bring to the classroom. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think in his case, he was saying also that there was a an explicitly uh, like a segregationist, yeah, uh, white tendency. original sin thing. Where mm-hmm. I don't think, frankly, I don't think my wife had any white kids in her class, so it wasn't that wasn't as pronounced for her. She didn't have to single out a scapegoat group and, and talk about um, what people are born with sin based on their skin color. And what Russell is saying is that historically the school was built on a, a successful integration, integrationalist model where mm-hmm. you know, there, a lot of rich white families would, mm-hmm. would subsidize uh, scholarships for bringing in people from from diverse neighborhoods, which was which itself was a great idea. Even if it was just to you know compensate for their guilt, it's a great real world impactful way to sublimate your guilt. Yeah. But now the school, having adopted the the latest in in equity trends, has pushed further. And away from the integrationalist model, and has created more and more segregation, where where white kids and black kids learn different histories and go to different programs, and the white kids obviously are taken through a Catholic rituals of self reprimand and guilt elevation. I always wonder to what extent there's a kind of ultra shrewd class interest strategy at play here. The sense that if you're some rich parent, why would you want to educate your kids' competition in forms of knowledge that actually have applied value? Better off to just indoctrinate everybody in these kind of, uh, in these systems of ideology that generate counterfeit status and obsess over symbolic self-worth but don't actually produce technically applicable bodies of knowledge that like they can go out and earn money with this thought this thought really had obsessed me for or I obsessed over that thought for for years especially since the first time I heard the the the, the dumb phrase abolish stem 
what is more I, to me like what is more racist is more, more what is more status quoist than trying to segregate stem making stem a white thing i never heard that before abolish stem oh yeah oh yeah that's a thing yeah okay you know it's the offshoots of things that i'm sure you've heard like talk about math and and mm-hmm. rationality and, mm-hmm. and logic as the progeny of sure, the enlightenment sure. and white supremacy and it therefore follows in the minds of, of those people that stem is a white project can you think of something more racist than that? They're basically saying that the people of color don't belong in STEM and therefore are effectively locked out from the type of education that tends to generate the most wealth to people. The jackasses who peddle this stuff should be condemned daily as the freaking perpetuators of inequity. Yeah, I agree. Um, and look to to give a nod, take a, a different subject for a second, and show the way that this kind of narrative formation works and the effect oh, so, so, that it has. So re- remember yeah. that, just because my point about Rossi was actually was not to to ramble. Mm-hmm. Um, partly was, but the the. There was the audio that leaked of Rossi speaking to his, I think it's the the school uh, headmaster or something. Yeah, and the headmaster admits, yeah, we are we we are creating a, a culture that is is very stressful and 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 discriminatory towards white kids. It's bad. This is not helpful. And he admits it. And then and then Paul says, okay, so now what? But but yeah, we, we're going to work over it. And then when P- Paul comes out with it, it, the headmaster denies it completely until the Denied the whole be- thing, right? Wrote a letter to the parents saying it had it been like that. He took me out of context. Mm-hmm. It, despite the audio, literally, he says, yeah, mm-hmm. we are hurting the white kids. It's, it, this is the insanity of the, and how craven people are at this point in the administrative level. But yeah, sorry, go back to your... No, no, I think that that's right. But the... Um, the the sort of lies that serve power tend to be related to each other in um, I don't know what you familial ways like they, there are different sorts of um, different kinds of lies they're not all racial they're not all about gender identity politics uh, or whatever. Um, but they're throughout the upper strata of American society, a set of, you know, I think what have become more and more detached, more and more pernicious, um, more and more detached, pernicious, inviolable, like invincible narratives. And you can see it in in any number of different fields. You know, I, I was thinking of it in terms of the Russian bounty story, which mm. was obviously false from the second that it came out. I mean, I wrote a piece about it last August, explaining not only why it lacked credibility, but also why it had been introduced at the moment. And it had been introduced. And the very short answer is because Donald Trump had floated a proposal to withdraw American troops from Afghanistan. And there was both an entrenched resistance to an American withdrawal from Afghanistan by people who um, benefit from the endless prolongment of a lost uh, war and also uh, strong political 
opposition from people who wanted to deny Trump a political win before the election. Was Trump trying to get a political win before the election? Of course he was. Um, but who cares? You know, the point is, was it a good thing to withdraw American troops? from? Was it a good thing to end the war in Afghanistan? Yes or no? Yes, it was a good thing. As we know, since the moment Joe Biden did it, it was widely celebrated. But when Trump did it, not only was it um, widely attacked, including by some of the same people who are now celebrating the Biden proposal, it was deliberately sabotaged by a story that was planted in the New York Times by anonymous intelligence officials and then treated as, an, as a fact, as an article of faith. Um, and so there are all these people now who are like, gee, wow, the Russian bounty story. Uh, maybe that was sort of fishy all along, but it was obvious from the start. Uh, and it wasn't a popular thing to say or to write last year, including for me with other veterans who are, I think some of them are good, reasonable people, but who are so caught up in um, the idea that anything Trump did was bad that uh, unable to see that just, just because Trump himself might have been bad or they disliked him as a president or whatever, it, that's the nature of politics. You're not supposed to like the guy. It's not about that, you know, and it's, it's not about uh, who represents you and who you have to swear a little. It's like, is it a good idea to end the war? Yes or no? Of course it's a good idea to end the war. The, the war only continued for as long as it did because it served the same tiny, narrow band of ruling class Americans who are also invested in critical race theory. I mean, it's the same thing. I, I just want to, that's ultimately what I'm getting at. Like the Russian bounty story, which was an absurd, obviously transparently false construction that nevertheless became the basis for prolonging the war in Afghanistan, for denouncing Trump, was cited in the congressional record, became part of the kind of evidence put together by a bipartisan congressional group uh, led by Liz Cheney that, you know, ended up putting additional stipulations on the war. So you couldn't end the war in Afghanistan until, you know, Afghan women had fully equal rights or whatever other absurd standard functionally meant you could never end the war. Um, all of that uh, is connected in a very direct sense, often in terms of it being like one degree removed in terms of people, in terms of this tight group of people who do this kind of narrative construction. It's all part of the same thing. I want to give Vanessa a chance to ask about, like, she she has an interesting pushback on 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 this area. But I just before that, just because we brought up Afghanistan and something that I I thought about asking you on and how 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 did your experience there affect your 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 view and wanting to see the the war quote unquote and and do you have no reservations on the full withdrawal you know the 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 import uh, unfortunate date of of withdrawal notwithstanding well my experiences there showed me was that there was no war left to win that there's not a war we were not fighting to win a war in Afghanistan. We have a massive NGO, governmental, military complex 
that exists to prolong its own presence through a series of ventures that almost never produce the results. They're supposed to produce the results. So a few obvious examples, you know, there's, uh, I forget the figure off the top of my head, but many billions of dollars spent on an opium eradication program in Afghanistan. It's a total failure, produced nothing. The, the most important, central, pivotal aspect of the American military mission in Afghanistan for the last decade plus has been the training of the Afghan National Security Forces so that they could take over the combat role um, and allow American forces to um, withdraw. But that has never worked. The Taliban controls more territory now than it did a decade ago, in no small part because all of this was based around a series of national level fantasies about what Afghanistan is, what it is as a nation, who Afghans are as a people in terms of what they want, I mean, and in terms of how they understand their own social and political identities. Um, and then most fun, so that there's a way in which it was just like obviously detached from reality and spending six months there in 2012 also just confirmed for me um, that we were all lying, like that it was a lie, that the progress reports going back to the States were a lie, that the progress reports my unit was sending up were based on lies that, um, and you know, look, there's bullshit in every war and you can accept a certain degree. I'm not like some, I'm not a pacifist I'm, and I'm not a purist and, you know, uh, in that like I'm some naive who's so offended by um, any kind of deception. But the question is like, is the deception connected or is the, the useful stretching of the truth, whatever, connected to a useful truth? Is it connected to a useful outcome? In this case, these were just lies for the sake of lies. They were lies for the sake of prolonging the war because the war fed the military industrial complex, which is a very real thing that really exists and has tremendous power in the United States that benefits defense contractors and benefits politicians and um, screws over American members of the military and the American public at large insofar as it distorts our foreign policy and weakens our national security. So I recognize Screws, that it was I, a I, lot. I'm specifically, I'm specifically interested in screwing um, um, servicemen. It screws them by just sending them to, to be useless patrol officers in, in Kabul, in that sense? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, it's the... the the role of the military leadership is to ensure the rare uh, uh, discriminating employment of those forces in the first place. And then also that once employed, that those forces are committed to achievable ends that, that serve a strategic purpose. You know, look, the, the war in Afghanistan had a strategic purpose in 2001, so I'm, I'm like not somebody who's opposed or even now thinks that the invasion was wrong necessarily. It's a long story. I wrote a piece for uh, American Affairs. People can look it up if they're interested. I've written a number of things on Afghanistan over the years, but there's a essay I wrote for American Affairs called, um, I think it's data-driven defeat in Afghanistan that lays this out at length. But the bottom line is that 
the war became totally detached and unmoored from any connection to American national security, to, to a strategic outcome vital to uh, the safety and peace of Americans at home, which is the only thing wars should be fought, fought for, right, is the safety and peace of uh, just about the only thing wars should be fought for. Became totally detached from that, became a kind of self-justifying instrument in the way of a lot of bureaucratic entities become self-justifying instruments. And that went on for a long time. So the way it impacted me is that I saw that. Um, I took my own service very seriously. I wasn't a, an especially good soldier. I didn't do anything especially distinguished. I'm not uh, I'm nobody who's like, nobody's going to make any movies or there's not going to be even a footnote in a book about me. That's fine. Um, but I did take it seriously and I, I didn't, I didn't volunteer myself and put myself and my life on the line so that I could lie, uh, to my superiors and, and lie to the American public. So I don't, I don't do that. One thing I did want to ask you about, um, Jacob was it seems just from like reading some of your pieces it it definitely seems like you put a uh, rightly a lot of weight on this idea of evidence right and like facts and like especially as a journalist like your job is to gather facts and not necessarily be swayed by the narrative swirling around you um but I guess I had I had some questions around that idea because I I, I don't know it's like I also think part of the journalist's job is to point out um, trends or things that they're picking up on that don't necessarily correlate to hard scientific research, right? Like, if it felt like from reading your stuff, you put a lot of weight on hard scientific research. Um, but at the same time, the research itself, there are gaps. There's like, there's power plays in, in who gets money to research, to study what. Um, and so I was wondering, like, how you think about that, about how to, how to, yeah. Yeah, that I think I'm more on your side, actually. It's fun. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you must have, uh, maybe it's a reflection of like what particular pieces you read. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, yeah. I, I, don't, uh, I don't think of myself as somebody who's um, <clears throat> exclusively interested in, I mean, I'm not exclusively interested in scientific fact. I don't think it's the only kind of relevant or useful knowledge. Um, and I think in a lot of my writing, um, clearly, you know, it's not, not the stuff you read, but for instance, for instance, the piece I just referenced about Afghanistan, data-driven defeat in Afghanistan, is all about how these statistical numbers-based reports on Afghanistan were totally misleading, and were not only misleading insofar as they were doctored, right, and the numbers were um, manipulated or falsified in some way, they were misleading because wars are not won and lost on statistics. They're won and lost on an understanding of what's at stake. The reason why America has stayed in Afghanistan for 20 years is not because we couldn't get our metrics right. It's because we over-prioritized metrics as a way of avoiding the actual hard strategic calculations. And the reason why we avoided those hard strategic calculations it's complicated, but a lot of it, I think, comes down to an unwillingness to deal straightforwardly with national interest. What's in the interest of Americans, not what's in the interest of Afghan civil society. Not because I'm 
want to be callous towards Afghans. I, I just can't imagine anything more callous than prolonging a war in their country to no great end for pipe dreams about, um, you know, educational goals, uh, gender parity and, and, and agrarian programs. I can't imagine anything more callous than that. So, no, I look, when I think about what are the forms of knowledge in journalism and in reporting that I prioritize or that I think are most important, science is not, for me, it's not in the top three. I want to drill into the your point about the failure of foreign reporting. To what extent is it the result of the culture warification of everything? There's no reality that exists outside the the judgment of your tribal culture or allegiance. There's a pressure everywhere for all forms of reporting to adhere to a set of um, sort of centralizing, um, mutually reaffirming propositions. And foreign reporting is no exception to that. Um, mm -hmm. And to me, the, the Russian bounty story I was talking about before is it's a perfect example of that. That was a flat-out absurd concoction. And I encourage people to go back and to trace this. And, you know, if you want to look up what I've written about it, it's a tablet. I forget what it's called. Something about the black hole of foreign policy, something like that, from last August. But there are plenty of other people who wrote about it also. Glenn Greenwald had a very good piece about it at the time. There were some other people. Um, that was a absurd concoction. Um, I, I, I just can't overstate the degree to which that story was not, over, not only implausible to somebody like myself who has some experience in Afghanistan and knows something about the country, it was, there was no evidentiary basis for it, right? The whole story was based on leaked anonymous security officials telling the New York Times convenient things that then got re-reported by the Washington Post and these other places and the Daily Beast where I used to work and all these other places who then said, you know, uh, then treated it as if they were reporting the story out and confirming it for themselves. When in fact, what most of them were doing were merely talking to the same sources who had initially talked to the New York Times and then acting as if they had corroborated it. There was no corroboration for it. And the military chain of command in Afghanistan was disputing it from the beginning, saying, actually, you know, we don't see this. You know, there was one very weak intelligence assessment, or I shouldn't say very weak, but just, you know, an uncorroborated, unconfirmed intelligence report. Um, and this got as far as it did, and maybe people forget now, but it was very consequential last year. It was a big story, right? Trump was allowing Russians to target Americans in Afghanistan to pay bounty. It was like this one in a ser endless series of moral outrage stories that distracted people from the actual conditions of their lives. Um, and from the fact that absent a lot of fear-mongering and hype about Trump and the nefarious Russian collusion, um, maybe actually they didn't want American soldiers in Afghanistan anymore. Maybe it was time to end the war. Maybe as loathsome as Trump was, that shouldn't have been more important than ending the war. But this 
story was allowed to it was it was allowed to become the truth with a capital T. And the fact that people are very comfortable with Biden doing the same shows that so many people, if they are morally consistent, basically said, well, we're fine with waiting an extra year until like we bring like until we uh, uh, close up operations in in Afghanistan as long as it makes sure that Trump doesn't get a second term. Yeah, hmm. right. Which is all of the accusations against Kissinger and and Nixon about like allowing fighting to go on in in um, Vietnam just to just mm. to to retreat by, by once getting once elected. One last thing I'm going to ask you, and then we'll let you go. We can answer it with like four words if you if you can figure out how. Um, I just want to tie it in with the the beginning of our conversation. You said that one of the intellectual excuses you've given yourself for leaving the US is that you find it difficult to write about America inside America mm-hmm. can in the context of all our conversation can you can you kind of like bring us back there and say what do you what did you mean by that what I mean is the same thing the novelist Jonathan Weetham meant when he said that he had to leave Brooklyn to write about Brooklyn because Brooklyn had become cancerous with novelists and he couldn't plot out and conceive of a novel in Brooklyn because it was cancerous with novelists. America for me is a country I love very dearly. My politics have always been basically personal, like, uh, you know, sentimental patriotism is how I describe my politics. That's it. That's, I don't care. beyond that. I don't vote. I never voted. I, I just don't care beyond that. It's not that important to me. But I really love America. And I love... Ah, what, what do I love? I love a lot of things. I love the American frontier. I love the American dream of liberty. Um, I hate the American cruelty of the frontier and the Um, destruction of other people's liberties, but I love the American struggle against that, and I love um, cowboy movies and comic books and jazz and you know it was Charlie Mingus's birthday the other day I love Charlie Mingus and you know I love uh, big American cities and um, the mountains in Montana and the salmon River. I just love all that you know I'm just saying that's That's the stuff I love. That's what's meaningful to me. Um, and I still love that. Uh, but I felt that uh, the air in America, and particularly where I was living in New York, got choked off by um, a kind of coercive, conformist, um, and, and fearful, anxious, insecure, delusional um, attention to uh, like the meaning of political meaning of every minute event. And so what I mean when I say this finally like is not that oh, these people don't agree with me and they don't share my politics and because whatever I don't it's fine, I don't really care. Um, the fact that I don't like as soon as we've wound up in this bizarre place where like if you, Um, say bad things about critical race theory it means you're talking about Carlson or something but mm. um, I don't think that's how most Americans feel that's a that's something that um, media people say to enforce 
the hegemony of that view. It doesn't reflect reality in the least. You know, it's not, um, it's not conservative to be, you know, to say like, I, I don't want racial guilt stuff taught to my children is not conservative. That's bizarre. It's bizarre that people you know, will allow that um, to be passed off as the truth. So anyway, so that's not what I mean though. So I don't mean that people are promoting ideas that I disagree with. What I mean is that you can't just sort of have a, I felt it more and more difficult to have a kind of unscripted, adventurous experience of other human beings in the city of New York mm. where we could collide with each other in messy but interesting and generative ways. And I felt like every little interaction was becoming more and more fraught with political consequence. I don't want to be around People like, why would you move to Israel if you don't want to be around politics? But I don't know. Um, for one thing, it's not my politics in the same way. So it's like, obviously, I moved here. I'm part of this country now, but I'm never going to be Israeli. You know, I'm, and so I can be an exile here in a place that I like and that I feel connected to. But in exile, I don't have to. I don't have to be so attached to other people's demands that I that I, you know, insist on this meaning for this thing. Like, I, I just don't want to be a part of it. It's, life's too short for that stuff. So I hope that that um, extended soliloquy offers some kind of answer to your question. I'm sure it doesn't, but hopefully it's an adequate <laughs> substitute. Was there an event specifically that you remember that captures that? <laughs> no. What kind of event could possibly capture no, it's no. so a lifetime of events. Uh, oh, I, I often in my life, that's, I guess that's how my narrative brain works. But I, I often <laughs> have this moment that I associate with this kind of encapsulated why. And I will always think about it, but that's when I decided to move or whatever. Oh, so make a change. I, I catch a feeling and then the feeling builds. If it doesn't go away, I act on it. So there was no <laughs> one thing. It was just a feeling that didn't go away. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and enemies and give us a five-star review on Apple if you feel generous. Till next time, stay sane. By the way, Zev, we're recording! <laughs> Heads up! <laughs> Calvinists should be pro-abortion, I think. If I'm, if I'm honest. You know, it would be kind of... In <laughs> Sorry, I didn't even like let that sink in before I started responding. Sure. Calvinists, send us a tweet if you agree. <laughs> probably, TikTok we, message. We probably have more Calvinist listeners, like adamant Calvinists, than we do uh, uh, Gen Zers. Right. And I don't know if they're on TikTok.